just want to be able to add my word of thanksgiving. First, thanks to the leadership of Ebenezer for having found George and Judy. It was, it's interesting because you use memnonics to remember names, and so I think of Punch and Judy, um, <laughs> which also works for me. My wife's name is Jane, so you can think of Tarzan. And <laughs> that, but I want to thank the leadership for having... I want to thank the leadership for, uh, for having, having brought him in as a partner, and then I also want to thank both George and Judy. It has been a, a really delightful season, and, uh, and now that you're going, and, and in a few weeks I'll be joining you, uh, maybe we could hit the road as a road act, you know, uh, <laughs> Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or something like that, you know, uh, along the way. It's been a delight to be able to serve together with you very, very much. Would you pray together with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I, I realize when we come together in worship here now and we open your word, we, we, we come with the expectation that a window is opening up before us through your word so that we might see you with greater clarity and that we might understand who you are in, in, in your glory. Uh, but Lord, I pray this morning that even as we open our word, your word, that it might serve as a mirror to ourselves so that we might be able to see, you, uh, see ourselves as you see us, that we might see ourselves as you see us and then realize how you have endowed us with treasures that go far beyond the human eye in, 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 in giftedness and in time and in Treasures, Lord, that, that, that you've endowed us with to be used to your glory and to your service. And so, Lord, I pray that you would hope, help us to, to see ourselves as you see us so that we might fully and freely honor you and love you and serve you in even greater measure. This I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, this morning I would like to bring our winter study of the Gospel of Luke to an end by inviting you to turn to what, for many of you, will be a a very familiar passage. It's found in the first four verses of Luke chapter 21. And as you turn there, some of you in your Bibles may recognize this particular passage by its title. It's called The Widow's Might. And for, for many, this is one of the key passages that has been used to teach us something about the nature of money and, and what it reveals. And I'd like to think that, uh, that this will make a great segue into some of the reflections that I will actually begin next week that will bring us into welcoming a new pastor. So as you turn to uh, Luke 21, I want you to catch the scene. There we read that Jesus, having finished his debates with his opponents uh, and, 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 and left them looking to find a place to hide, uh, he chose to sit himself down by the temple treasury. In verse 1 it says, As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Now in the same moment in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark writes, he says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and then he watched there the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. The first thing about this scene you need to notice is that Jesus was participating in the time-honored sport of people watching. 
And what a remarkable pastime it is. He sat down and he decided to watch. Now, now let me take a few moments to describe the setting of this particular scene. The treasury was a a bank-like structure in the temple complex where the the people would come to make their offerings. And during the uh, uh, Passover, this was, in fact, one very, very busy place. And so you can picture the, 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 the intense traffic in front of this place. And in front of the treasury, there stood 13 huge brass treasure chests that were called trumpets because they were shaped like inverted horns. They were narrow at the top and they were fluted at the bottom. And inscribed on each of these 13 chests were words that that designated the appropriate offering that was to be made. On one it would say, new shekels do, and then old shekels do, and One was bird offerings, and one was wood, and one was frankincense. One was gold for the mercy seat. Those were six of them. And then there were free will offerings on all the rest. Now, now, now just one other note. According to I. Howard Marshall, the New Testament uh, scholar, priests and scribes were posted at each one of these treasure chests, and then, as the offerings were given, would announce the amount of each uh, each gift that had been offered. It was kind of a, like an early accounting technique. The giver would come, the priest would assess the gift for its value, and then would announce it in a loud voice for everyone to hear while the scribe would write it down. Now, why would they would do that? I don't know. They didn't have charitable donations, as far as I know, in those days. Uh, but they would have a megaphone to make the gift known. And so Jesus takes a seat, and he is watching this show. And it must have been great entertainment. Can you just picture the scene? People watching, and then when they hear the amounts going ooh and ah as the, as the numbers and the names were, were, were announced, and, and, and the world would have, had, would have been seeing numbers. But Jesus, as he's people watching, had his eyes fixed on something much deeper. He had the ability to look into the human heart. And so as he's looking, he's watching, and he's waiting, and he's weighing each actor, a- a- action. And, and he has the ability to look in the heart of each of the givers as well. What a thought. Just what do you think he saw with each of the gifts? And, 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 and while you hold that thought in mind, just wonder to yourself, what do you think he sees in you each time we take an offering? He has that ability. And so as Luke continues, we discover exactly what he saw. The first thing he saw in verse 1 was the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Now, I, I do not want to do the easy thing here and just condemn rich people because they're rich. I am not a socialist, okay? Over the years as a pastor, I've encountered people really of great wealth and of equally great faith. And those with that gift of giving are possessed of a great humility as well as, a, as an equally great generosity. And what is really so remarkable is that more often than not, no one would ever be able to guess from the outside who these people are simply because they refuse to allow their giving to go on display. But here, it's different. There is a parade. 
And if you go back just a few verses into chapter 20 and verse 46, you'll find a caption for the picture of this parade. They were walking in flowing robes, loving to be greeted, taking the most important seats, the places of honor for a show, and then making lengthy prayers for all to hear. There is something about the human heart that does seek attention, doesn't it? And and, and those of faith are really not immune to that sort of temptation. So you can imagine the scene, the hush that came over the crowd as a celebrity stepped forward and followed by by servants with gifts that were, were more than any one person could carry and then watch as the servants are directed to the different trumpets and at each one the account is assessed and the value given and the announcement made. Can you top a scene like that? And while the eyes of the crowd are fixed on that surface display, Jesus had a different focus. Verse 2, Jesus also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Now the first thing to notice here is that there was nothing about her of note. Widows of that day, especially poverty-stricken widows, wore pretty much the same generic cast-off clothing, black, worn, tattered, guaranteed to render them invisible to society. So you can almost picture her furtive approach, two coins in hand, not enough to make much of a sound. The word here in the Greek for those coins is the word lepta, which literally translates as peels. Peels. And so you can imagine the announcement that was made by the scribes. Two peelings. Their value was one four-hundredth of a shekel, or in our currency, about one-eighth of a penny, That is, if Canada still had pennies. Um, But one-eighth of a penny. For us, it's nothing. But for her, it was something else. Now, I can imagine that when she came, she had to take a deep breath and dig deeper for courage to ignore the crowd because her gift was so small, but she didn't do it for them. Any more than the prayers that were played aloud for all to hear should have gone to God. For her, her gift was, in fact, going to God. She did it for God. There was one and only one opinion she really cared about and only one person who really mattered in this transaction. And little did she know that, in fact, that one person, the only one who really mattered, was, in fact, watching and watching her with rapt attention. Jesus saw her. And what he saw was more than just two peelings. He saw the landscape of her heart. Because written in her actions and inscribed on her gift was, in fact, the great Shema, the creed of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Lord, love the Lord your God then with all of your heart and with your soul and with all of your strength and all of the peelings that you've got in your hand. These commandments I give you, Today must be upon your heart. That's what we read in Deuteronomy, except for the peeling part. And on that Passover, and with that gift, the widow made a very simple prayer to God. In line with the Shema, she says, I love you, Lord, 
with all my heart. I love you with all I am. I love you and all that I have is yours and to your using. As I look at, Mark, at Luke chapter 21, God heard that as a prayer, and even as Jesus witnessed it as in her actions. In the Gospel of Mark, it says, he called his disciples then, in view of this, to himself. But here in Luke, it simply gives us an idea of what he had to say. It says, I tell you the truth, said Jesus. He has something to say to all who would follow him, something of truth. The disciples then and now disciples today, you and me as well. And I've listened three parts to his message. The first is that God's greatest concern is really the measure of your heart. In verse 3, he says, This poor widow has put in more than all the others. As if to say, I know the measure of her sacrifice, and she has held nothing back. Now, I am, I am really fascinated by the nature of her gift. Some may wonder why she gave two coins, and the answer is very simple. According to Gildenize and Plummer, Jewish law at the time required no less than two gifts were to be given at Passover, except, and here's the exception, in the case of widows, where one would be permitted. As she came, she gave two. She could have given one, but no, she gave two. She was not looking for loopholes with God. There's an element of abandon here that appears well worth her while to make that journey and to step forward and be known by all. Now stop and just think for a moment. In, 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 in a matter of, what, a, a week? Actually, for me, it was yesterday. Uh, many of us will have to write out a check to Revenue Canada, or I should probably say, update myself, Canada Revenue Service Agency. And you want to know something? Revenue Canada could really care less how you felt whenever you wrote that check. They could care less whether it was given willingly or reluctantly or with a grudge or with love or with reluctance. They really don't care. Just send in the check. Show them the money. Not so with Jesus. He's looking for the heart. And he's looking into the heart of all mankind. Because there, God is capable of seeing the motive. Now, on your sermon outline, I I, I simply wrote a quote from one of the more challenging books I've ever read, Take My Life by Michael Griffins. And let me read it. It says, Nothing offers so practical a test of our love for Christ and for others, as does our attitude toward money and possessions. Nor does anything so test our claims to be delivered from this present evil world. The world asks us how much we own. Christ asks us, how do we use it? The world asks us, what do we give? Christ asks us, how do we give it? The former thinks of the amount. The latter thinks of the motive. To the unconverted, money is a means of gratification. To the converted, it is a means of grace. To the one, it is an opportunity for comfort. 
but for the other is an opportunity for consecration and service. (laughs) You've all heard the phrase, what's in your wallet? The question really should be, what's in your heart? Not just with money, but with all you have to offer, your time, your, your treasure, your talents. The Apostle Paul got it right when he when he he came to the point in 1 Corinthians and he confessed, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, something out of the heart, I've got nothing. The measure of worth in anything you do is the love you have from God and for God. And even a penny given inspired by love for your Savior, becomes more precious than any other jewel. Which leads to the second truth that I have for you. The first is, God's greatest concern is the measure of your heart. The second is, the amount of your gift, when it becomes God's, becomes God's uh, creative concern. Look at verse 4. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she has to live on. Hold on to the word live, life. There's life in her gift. I cannot help but think that the gifts made out of rote ritual were in fact inert and possessed of no life at all. But hers was, in the eyes of Jesus, filled with life. It was all that she had to live. And in the hands of God, when you give him something that has life within it, look out. I I, I read a fascinating study uh, on on the calculation of her gift. It is estimated that if the widow's mite had been deposited at the First National Bank of Jerusalem to draw 4% interest semi-annually, the fund today would total (laughs) $4,800 quintillion, $4,800 quintillion. That's how much it would be worth today. 48 followed by 20 zeros. Now, if a bank on earth could multiply the widow's might to such an astronomical figure, just think what sort of treasures God could make out of yours. (laughs) For almost 2,000 years, God has used her gift, I would like to think, wouldn't this be a beautiful, a beautiful little uh, imaginary setting that God had used her gift of these two peelings to inspire billions of his people to pursue a servant heart and to give and to serve. And the church has begun to flourish and the kingdom of God has been built upon 4,800 quintillion dollars worth of compounded interest living peeling. And that's what happens with a, with a gift that is full of life like hers. Who knows what happens to gifts just given, inert, without any heart? Maybe they end up like in the parable, getting buried like that treasure in the field and yielding nothing in return. But hers was worth more than any of us could possibly imagine. I can't even begin to think of 4,800 Quintillion, I, that's a staggering figure. Back a few years ago, when I was part of a pledge campaign that was to raise money for ministry, I was impressed by a slogan that had guided our group as we went to work. And the slogan was this, not equal gifts, 
but equal sacrifice. That's what we were looking for, a heart. And what the church needs is not larger gifts, but gifts given with the spiritual quality of devotion, which is filled by the love of God and is inspired by a commitment to His grace. And her gift may have been all she had, but it was filled with life. And upon that, God can go to work. Finally, one more principle. The matter of your giving determines the nature of God's reward. Now, I chose not to dwell on the last few verses of of chapter 20, but there is a judgment that is made here that indicates that Jesus reserves the right to square the accounts when it comes to our gifts. Those who live their life of faith as a show, such, Jesus says in verse 47 of chapter 20, will be punished most severely. That's a reward, or that's a consequence that none of us would care to receive. But for those who have chosen to give God their hearts with abandon, the reward in return is nothing less than the fullness of His grace. When I first read this passage, the phrase in verse 4, giving out of poverty, that Jesus uses here to describe her gift, it echoed in my mind, and, and I searched and I found that very same phrase is repeated in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where we find a formula that underlines remarkable sainthood. Paul writes, And now, brothers, we, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. Out of their most severe trial their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty, out of their poverty, wells up their rich generosity. (laughs) Now now, now let's see how this is as as an economic equation. You have severe trial plus extreme poverty plus overflowing joy, and what does that equal? Rich generosity. And this rich generosity is given a reward. And what is the reward? The grace of God, how the grace of God is to be seen among these people. And you have to ask yourself the question, what is the difference? It's overflowing joy. It's it's, it's a a matter of worship to God. I testify, Paul writes, that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They, They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the servants to the saints, and they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. What is it that God wants most of all from each one of us? Our money? Not really. He wants us. He wants you. He wants your passion. He wants your devotion. What is it God wants most of all? And then what is it that God wants to do? He wants to pour out His grace upon us. And he wants his grace to be the treasure that we value most in life. Which raises the question, why would this be so important for us this morning and then leading into the weeks ahead? Well, in just in a matter of a few weeks, Ebenezer is going to embark on a whole new season with a whole new pastor. At least I pray that he's whole. (laughs) And you may wonder, do we have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? Listen very carefully. The the greatest treasure of the church has always been found in the substance of the human heart that is overflowing with the grace of God. 
You, you, you may be tempted to look around and wonder, what assets do we have here that would make any difference to the kingdom of God? After a long season, what, four years without a pastor, that may be a real issue that you, you, you might encounter. And now on the verge of, of, of welcoming a new pastor, you may feel like the widow in Luke chapter 21 with, with just a mite, just two peelings in your pocket, wondering, have we got what it takes? I'm sure, like I said, you've seen that commercial, what's in your wallet. Well, that's not the question that really counts. It's what's in your heart. If it belongs to God, it's going to be a treasure measured in infinite and eternal value, and it will make a difference. Trust me. It's always been that way. It's our legacy. It's the legacy of those who belong to Jesus Christ. And it goes all the way back to this moment in Luke chapter 21 and has been lived out throughout the history of the life of the church. I I love the story that is told from the middle of the third century of a Christian leader named Lawrence who served as a deacon in the Church of Rome. According to the historical records, Lawrence was in charge not only of holy things, things like the communion chalices and the candlesticks, but he was also in charge of the church's treasury and what we would call its mercy fund. At this moment in the half of the third century, there was a wave of persecution against the followers of Christ, and one day the prefect of the city of Rome, at the order of the emperor, demanded that Lawrence gather up and give him the wealth of the church. And Lawrence sent back a message to the prefect. He said, I do not deny that our church is rich and that no one in the world is richer, not even the emperor, than we are. And so I will bring forth all the precious things that belong to Christ, if only you will give me a little time to gather everything, gather together. The prefect agreed, and then began to dream of what he could do with all that money, and gold and silver, and how much he could peel off for himself from the emperor. It took three days, and for three days, Lawrence ran around the city collecting the church's treasures. But they were not the sort of treasures of the prefect's dreams or of the emperor's expectations. Instead, Lawrence surveyed all of the fellowships that made up the Roman church, went to each of the homes and the houses, and gathered together the church's real treasure, (laughs) the poor, the disabled, the blind, the homeless, and the lepers. And among his collection were, was a man with two eyeless sockets, a, a cripple with a broken knee, a, a one-legged man, a, a person with one leg shorter than the other, and others with grave infirmities. He wrote down their names, and he lined them up at the entrance to the one church building that they had. And there on the third day, he presented them to the prefect. These are the treasures of the church of Christ, Lawrence declared, as he offered this ragged crowd to the astonished prefect. Their bodies may not be beautiful, but within these vessels of clay are contained all of the riches that we have, all of the treasures of divine grace. At that, the prefect turned away in disgust and reported to the emperor that the Christians had really nothing to be offered and should be considered both contemptible and harmless. In the words of the scribes, in light of the widow in Luke, These people were not even worth two peels. Forget about them. And yet it was these same people, and yet it was the same church that ended up turning the empire 
upside down. Isn't that the way God works? The simplest offering of of the widow was alive because it came from the heart. And as the Apostle Paul put it in Romans, I urge now each and every one of you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, heart, soul, body, and mind, as living and holy sacrifices. An offering acceptable to God, this is our spiritual service of worship. And when you make that your offering, even empires, even Vancouver, is turned upside down. So what's in your heart? Each and every one of you, in the hand of God, are a treasure. A treasure that can make a difference for his grace and by his grace and to his glory. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you prepare us now with a vision to see ourselves even as you see us and to see how, Lord, you have endowed us with something wonderful, the substance of heaven. So, Lord, I pray that you would, in the coming days, Move our hearts so that we might be able to give ourselves to you in newer ways. That in service to you, Lord, your kingdom might, 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 might grow and build. And, and that, Lord, in welcoming a new pastor, that together, Lord, there might be a work that comes of God. So that glory might be given to your name, Lord, in even greater ways. All in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And in his name we pray, amen.